Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm Sandy Docker, your guest host today, and I'm very excited to be chatting with Fiona McIntosh. Fiona is one of Australia's most prolific and favourite storytellers, selling worldwide in a variety of languages, and she also hosts a series of writing masterclasses that are highly regarded by the industry as some of the best available anywhere. She has written across the genres of nonfiction, fantasy for children and adults, Time Slip, Historical Fiction and Crime. Welcome to Words and Nerds, Fiona. Gosh, thank you. That's quite an intro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are deserving of of an even bigger introduction. (laughs) Thank you. Today we're going to talk about two of your latest works of fiction, The Orphans, which I believe is your 14th work of historical fiction, and (laughs) and Dead Tide, your fourth crime novel. Firstly, let's delve into the world of the orphans. Can you give us the elevator pitch for this, please? Oh, gosh, I haven't done this for ages. Well, it's two two very isolated people who are thrown together by chance um, and then find themselves caught up in murder and mayhem in South Australia during the 1930s. Excellent. Now, uh, one of the main characters that you've just um, mentioned there is Fleur. She's our protagonist of the story. And I'd really like to talk about her for a little bit, if we could. Sure. While I was reading her story, I kept thinking, I want to be Fleur when I grow up. She's (laughs) She's a very strong willed and smart woman, but she's also kind, compassionate and forgiving. And I absolutely adored her. How did you go about crafting such a fabulous character as Fleur? Well, you know, um, I met a brilliant um, funeral director. Uh, After the death of my father, I was thrown into deep grief, no different to anyone else. Um, But he had this incredible sensitive nature to him that realised I was um, really beginning to obsess over not so much the passing of my father because that happens and I was I, w- I had that in perspective, but it was more uh, I was angsting over what are they doing to him behind closed doors because mm-hmm. that, that area of life was locked off to most of us and it's sort of something we don't really want to talk about but whilst I was in that phase of grief and and planning a funeral I wanted to know what they were doing with my father but it became a bit of an obsession and he had the perception to understand that 
this was um, sort of magnifying my grief, I suppose. And he approached me and said, Fiona, when you feel stronger and um, give yourself plenty of time, but when you feel better about everything, why don't you come and learn about what it is that we do in the mortuary? Now, there was no suggestion at that stage of storytelling. Mm -hmm. That was just a very personal invitation by a very empathetic man uh, who understood that everybody reacts in grief in different ways. And my answer to him was not hollow either. And I said, you know, I think I will. I do want to understand this. So I waited almost a year, you know, before I Mm -hmm. approached him and said, you know, I'd, I'd love to take you up on that offer. And he said, come on, come in, come and have some time with us. And we had days together. And I realized that he had this enormous historical knowledge because he was a fourth generation funeral undertaker himself. So he had this immense family history that could go right back into the 1800s, you know, and he loved that he had this history and he was glad to share it with somebody who was interested in it because often you might bang on about it, but people are thinking, I wish you'd be quiet, but I was interested. And so, you know, we had the shared interest and then he began to say, let's, are you prepared to face the mortuary? And I said, I am, I'm, I'm ready to go. And so then that happened and I got to meet the morticians and I got to see everything they did and they were very open and all of them were sort of interested in where their industry had come, where it began and where it had got to. So they were interested in the history of their side of it. And so what I noticed, just sorry, this very long-winded answer to your question. No, no, it's fascinating. I, if I had to pick one quality from all of these people, it well, not just one quality, if I had to put it in a nutshell, what they all represented, and I met so many different folk, they were all super um, intelligent, mm-hmm. but also they had this incredible empathy. There was a gentleness about each person and a calm. So I noticed that whether it was, you know, that the owner of the funeral home to the senior mortician to the junior mortician, the apprentice that was learning, they had, they all shared these qualities. And I thought, right, I need to imbue that into uh, when I finally decided that I was going to have a character who was a mortician, I needed to bring all of that to bear within her, that she would be intelligent Um, And it wouldn't detract from her being a feisty character or a pushy sort of a character. She would still have this ability to touch the emotion of the people that she was serving. And that tenderness was required at all times because they were walking around in front of me. She was very easy to pull together. So what was it about this very personal experience for you that, you know, wasn't intended to be research for a novel that made you actually want to turn that personal experience into a story? Yes, it was It was while I was in the mortuary, actually, and I was just chatting to them, you know, about we were, we were sort of at the end of our um, day together and everything they taught me about makeup and implements and and they were very careful about making sure that they got it in the right era my if I was 
you know, because I kept asking about the 30s, not again, not because I had a story, but because the 30s are an era that I enjoy most when I'm researching. So I kept mm -hmm. saying, what about in the 30s? You know, those interwar years always interest me. Anyway, it, I just, as I was leaving, I said to them, and women in the mortuary, and they looked at me as though I was speaking a foreign language, and they said, <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? And I said, well, um, what about women in that time? And they said, oh, there were no women, Fiona, don't be mad. And I, I really got on my high horse, and I said, but why? And they said, well, um, funerals in our part of the world in that era were really controlled by the Freemasons, which mm -hmm. was already secret enough, but it was basically all men. I mean, they and they were just saying they wouldn't have wanted women anywhere near them. And I said, but South Australia was a place where, you know, it was the first to give women the vote in this yep. country. It was the first to allow women to attend university. It was the first to allow women to lecture at university. And they said, yes, but certainly not step inside a funeral home and operate behind the scenes. And, and Fleur winked into existence. And I said, well, I am going to change that. <laughs> I really got quite cranky about it. And I said, no, I can't have this happening. I'm going to, I'm going to write a character. She's going to be female. She's going to push open those doors and be the first uh, female mortician in this country. And they said, Fiona, the world, not just the country, the world. And I said, right, well, that's what we're doing. And they all thought it was the biggest hoot. And they said, right, well, we'll help you. We'll make sure that we get every aspect of Fleur right for you. So I just had this most incredible Rolls-Royce help um, at my fingertips at all times. You know, it didn't matter at what stage of the story I was, I could just sort of uh, lean in on them and say, well, what would Fleur do in this situation? A mountain of answers would come back. You know, everyone had an opinion. So it was fantastic. And that that's why it went from being a very personal a sort of story of grief um, and it leapfrogged out of that very quickly into this um, fabulous potential for a really bright strong character and and that's perhaps the most positive outcome of the whole experience really that out of that not so much the grief but out of that sort of obsession and that I couldn't get past it came this brilliant character who sort of released me from that uh, all that anxiety, I suppose. One of the questions that as writers we often get asked is, you know, where do our ideas come from? And the short answer to that is you just don't know where they're going to come from, do you? Because who would have guessed that this is what would have come out of that experience? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, you know, that is my, I have two questions I loathe in interviews and on <laughs> stage. You've already asked the first one. Fiona, why don't you tell us all about your book that took that took you two years to research. Tell us, you know, wrap it up for us, really. So that question is the most loathed one for any writer, but also um, where do your ideas come from? And I often want to be flippant and say, well, I go out to the ideas tree and give it a shake, you know, but you can't because people are very, um, you know, they're very uh, sincere in that question because yes. people who don't write, people who enjoy reading think, wow, where do, where do these ideas come from? How do you keep getting these ideas? And it's a very unsatisfactory answer to say, I don't know. <laughs> but it's 
you know, things happen and there are serendipitous moments that occur in your life. And if you've got your radar up, I always think like that. If my antenna are constantly, you know, buzzing around in the wind, I'm going to pick up things and I'm going to pop them somewhere in the back of my mind and they are going to slide together with other little bits and bobs and think, you know, there's something here because I didn't have a male character and he mm -hmm. came about by chance as well. It just happened that during the lockdown era or certainly when we were imprisoned in our own states, my, lots of us took up new hobbies and uh, one of the things that my husband got busy was on was uh, looking into his family ancestry. Mm. And it was his journey to find out more about the first Macintoshes that took us on this trip out into the Flinders Ranges and onwards to Farina and to a, a massive um, sheep station in the far, far north of our state um, where... You know, his, the first Macintoshes um, found themselves working and I could, you know, a character was speaking to me from Ian's family mm -hmm. and I thought, my gosh, how? and then I'd created a real rod for my back thinking, how on earth do I bring, you know, Tom Catchlove from, um, you know, the far-flung outback who's only known shearing sheds, how mm -hmm. do I bring him together with a mortician in Port Adelaide. I mean, how, <laughs> what possible reason could those two people have to? Because it's not like there were regular trips, you know, day trips to and from. There was just no reason for them. But that yeah. was the storyteller's job, you know, and um, I I managed to make it work and out of it came this grand tale. And Tom is such a, a dreamy character too. I did fall a little bit in love with him, I have to say. Yeah, yeah he's very... He's very sympathetic as a character. He's sort of, uh, sort of. I don't want to say damaged, but he's certainly like an injured bird, mm -hmm. and so you do, you do feel very protective towards him. But there's a there's a sort of a, a spine of iron there. You know that, but there's been a lot of sadness and sorrow in his life, and. Um, and we followed him since he was a child, so we know what all that sorrow is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Fleur's a much, much more robust character than perhaps Tom. Maybe it's because she's a city girl, mm -hmm. you know, and she's been around death and all of that. Tom's just more gentle, isn't he? And he's just lovely. Yeah, lovely. yeah, he's, he's gorgeous. Just a little bit more on Fleur. I mean, it is fair to say that she's absolutely a trailblazer in her industry, and not just because she's the first female mortician, but also because she has this strong desire to change the way things are done. Yeah. And um, every reader brings their own experience to what they're reading, and something that resonated particularly with me as a mum who has lost a baby was Fleur's absolute relentless desire to not minimise a parent's grief when they lose an infant. And that was pretty radical thinking for the time. Mm. And I would suggest that it's quite radical even today that, we, you know, we don't really acknowledge that kind of loss properly. No. Why no. was it that you imbued Fleur with that particular, you know, personal drive of hers? Look, I mean, it's wrapped up in a lot of things. One of the... And I am very sensitive to the fact that when I'm standing on a stage and talking about Fleur, 
that there are women in the audience crying. And mm -hmm. I'm very aware that each of those women breaking my heart would have lost a child mm -hmm. because, um, you know, and I'm so mindful of it, but, uh, but by the end of it, they're smiling and most of them would come up and thank me for yeah. building a character that has been so sensitive to this, but it is an area that is just locked away. No one talks about it. Mm -hmm. And because I was a, a person who struggled to have children and um, I had to have cycles of IVF. And I know that when I lost those three beautiful eggs on the first cycle, it was like losing three children. And um, it's not the same as someone who has lost a, a living, breathing child or maybe got to full term and things went wrong, but you cannot take away from me the fact that mm -hmm. in my mind, those were three potential little lives that for, I couldn't hang on to them. And so I felt I failed them. And even in my own pregnancy that was very successful, I had a, a problem where the doctors told me later, they didn't tell me at the time, but they told me later that I had lost a child. And I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, so I think this story, or Fleur rather, I had some experience with it. I'd also listened to a podcast that was extremely moving about a, a woman who had lost a child and how badly it was handled within the hospital. Mm. Mm. You know, a lot of the time, you know, when I was doing IVF, now you're desperate, desperate to have a child. I can't begin to tell you mm. what, what it's doing to your emotional state and your mental state. Um, it, you're like a crazed person when you're, uh, trying to have a child and you can't for whatever reason you can't so they had the reproductive medicine unit within the maternity wing what could be worse for somebody mm. desperate to have a child to be confronted with mothers walking around with their new babies mm. um, you know it's heartbreaking stuff and yet nobody these hospitals were probably put together by men <laughs> and I don't mean to have a go at men but maybe by men and women who'd been successful with children and didn't for a moment think is this harmful in any way to mm. set a reproductive medicine unit in within the maternity wing it makes sense it's logical but yeah. it's not, it's not good for the people who are you know in this terrible situation of angst and also the the woman who lost her child she had to be within the maternity wing trying to grieve for this lost baby it was just the more I listened to this and I was crying as I was listening to this podcast, it all came together into Fleur. And I thought she has got to do better for, yeah. the, for the women who die during childbirth, for the children mm -hmm. who don't make it, and for the mothers who have to hand over a child who has, for whatever reason, yeah. died. And it, there would have been plenty through in that era, you know, because it's not like today. It didn't have the... Um, access to help and technology mm -hmm. that we have today. So um, it felt very important to give Fleur that angle, um, you know, because, and one thing I found really interesting, I won't harp on any longer, but one thing I found really interesting is that there was this uh, idea that they, in the thirties, that they didn't ever bury a child alone, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, particularly a baby. So if there was a baby, they would put that baby in the arms of a woman and bury the baby with that woman who has passed away because they felt at least that child is in the arms of a woman. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter that it's not its mother or, yep. you know. 
Um, and I thought, okay, that was an attempt. That was an attempt at something, but it still wasn't quite there. And Fleur changes, begins to change things, but confront it head on, you know, and talk about it and talk to the mother, talk to the parents, help those parents to let yeah well as one of those readers I thank you as well for for shining a bit of a light Let go. You know, on so that that's what she's about yes thank you Sandy yeah. now this is the first of your historical novels that is set wholly within Australia what challenges did that throw up for you and were there any unexpected joys having to stay on Australian soil yes my gosh it did it throw up challenges um Hardest book I've ever written, uh, without a doubt, because of my the obstacles in my mind. I'd never written an Australian story before. I'd never planned to write an Australian story. I think there are people who have been raised here, who've grown up with, you know, um, the big blue sky and the sunburnt land, who can convey that so very well um, into their Australian storytelling. I was born on the other side of the world, with miserable grey skies and seasons completely, uh, you know, in opposite. And I just never wanted to write an Australian story for fear of getting it, for fear of letting people down, you know, not quite nailing it enough. And so it was traumatising to have to be <laughs> in this lockdown state and knowing not only, A, that I had to write it, <clears throat> write a book or not. So it was that was the choice. Write one in Australia or don't write one at all. But then, no, you can't go to Queensland or New South Wales or Victoria or Tasmania, whatever. You've got to set it in South Australia. And I was like, you're joking. <laughs> you know, none of us really appreciate where we live. And the unexpected joy that you spoke about is my uh, humbling attitude, having explored South Australia or a part of South Australia for this story that I had never given credence to its beauty and its um, immense space and those Flinders ranges, the, the majesty of those formations, um, I was gobsmacked and I felt almost, you know, newly born into South Australia as a South Australian, having, having finally turned around and noticed my own state. So yeah, that was a, a delicious surprise and um, very humbled by it. And it was it was joyous to write a new landscape. So it was mm -hmm. the first time I was confronted by this landscape, the great outback or a port. You know, I'd never written about either before. So they were challenging, but brilliant, you know, to be faced with it. Mm -hmm. Now, The Orphans is, I think, my favourite of your historical novels yet. Yeah, really? and, I could, yeah. <laughs> and I could talk about it all day long, but we're also here to chat about your latest crime novel in the Jack Hawksworth series, Dead Tide, which I believe is Jack's fourth outing. Is that correct? Yes. He's out and about and he's down under, which is weird too, but there we are. Yeah, well, that was actually one of the questions that I had here. Now, Jack is a Scotland Yard detective, for those of you unfamiliar with Jack, and this is the first time that he has to leave the UK to follow a crime, and he does end up in South Australia. Uh, did bringing Jack down under create any hurdles that you had to overcome? Oh, my gosh. Uh, how much time have you got? <laughs> it was a ludicrous um, setup. It was just outrageous that I was 
going to attempt a crime featuring, you know, a Scotland Yard detective and have him come out to Australia. There is no real premise for that. Mm -hmm. um, and there were two reasons for that. The first was, again, we were still in this situation of not being able to get on planes and, and move freely to London where he would normally be. But also the world of Jack Hawksworth had been um, recently at the time optioned for um, screen. And so the media company that had, um, you know, bought the rights to the world of Jack Hawksworth said, oh, Fiona, we'd love it if you could give us an Australian story. And I said, what? Why? Why would Jack, a London based policeman, be out here? It would be like bringing Jim, Jimmy Perez from Scotland Yard, sorry, Jimmy Perez from Shetland. Um, out to out to Australia. There's no there's no reason for it. We've got our own police force. We don't need detectives from Britain. Anyway, they said, yeah, well, we'd like it all the same. So <laughs> it just became my problem, you know. But also, they then said, oh, and by the way, not Sydney and Melbourne. We want a new oh, landscape. Yeah. So it was like, you know, major Everest that I was facing. And I'd already felt like I'd climbed my Everest with the orphans. And suddenly there was like this new Everest that I had to write Jack down under. Um, well, uh, Need is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to my retired Scotland Yard detective and I spoke to my retired SA, very senior detective. And I said, can I do this? I threw an idea at them and they said, Actually, that could work under mm -hmm. the conditions. This could work. So I needed both of them to, you know, have their hands on the reins and say, you can't do this, but you can do that. Or yes, Scotland Yard would permit this, but under these conditions. So we found a way through and suddenly Jack was here and chasing down a villain and it was tremendous fun. It was really weird to have him on the streets of Adelaide, really weird, <laughs> I will admit. But it was also fun, you know. I had to just make sure it didn't feel like a travel log. You know, I've said yeah. that before somewhere else, that it's very important you don't try and show off South Australia to uh -huh. read. You had to just make it feel very natural that he was here, he had a job to do, and um, he wasn't going to look around the place. He wasn't on holiday, so he had to get from A to B, to C to D sort of thing. So I had to keep it very grounded in reality of what a policeman would have been doing. So mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, it was a tremendous um, challenge, but a great fun, just great fun too. Mm -hmm. Now in Dead Tide, Jack is actually on sabbatical and he is teaching at a university. And it's when one of his students um, passes away that he starts to discover there might be something a little bit sinister going on. And it um, turns out that it's an illegal egg harvesting ring. And uh, I think we can all guess now where the egg harvesting um, storyline would have come from, given what you've already shared with yeah. us. But what about the black market side of it? How did you tap into that area? What, where did that come from? Well, um, it, it came from the same um, mindset, really, because having been through IVF uh, to get our baby boys, um, I was very lucky that it happened so quickly for me. It was on a second cycle, but mm -hmm. I was moving around with people who were on a 
you know, they'd probably tried a dozen times or 14 or 20. There was somebody who tried 20 times. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, by then you are quite a twisted version yeah. of yourself because you've spent a hell of a lot of money. You've um, probably put your marriage under so much strain that it will never look the same again. And it's all in pursuit of something that may never uh, uh, appear. And so it's this awful, hollow, um, you know, quest for something that you cannot help yourself. And I looked at a lot of the women and there was, um, you know, there was despair. I just sensed tremendous despair. And uh, it was government regulated so there were only a certain amount of tries you could have in a given year mm -hmm. so there were all these hurdles for a couple that was desperate even if they had the money um but mostly you wouldn't have that kind of money it's a monstrous amount of money so it um it came out of that where i thought how far would you go as a couple when you're that desperate how far would you go to achieve what is so elusive and on the flip side, what are you prepared to do as a scientific person, a clinician? Uh -huh. At what point does trying to do the right thing become the bad thing? Uh -huh. You know, and so it was just really I was pressing into that very narrow space where things go dark. And that's where Jack finds himself. And I I found it very um, um what's the word intriguing to write about because I was plumbing my own emotions of course all mm -hmm. the time but at the same time playing with um a science that I knew I'd experienced but obviously was more contemporary because in my time I did it in the you know very early 90s I got pregnant in 1991 mm -hmm. so it was 1990 when I was going through it but this is 2008 or something like that so I had to make sure the technology was up to date mm -hmm. the science was right and it was great it was brilliant it's interesting that you mentioned the uh clinicians and what motivates them and and I thought you dealt with this really well which we won't delve into because of spoilers but how one can justify yeah what one is doing I thought that was a really interesting yeah. way that you examined that part of human nature can you justify it and if you can how do you justify it yeah and live with yourself you know um and, yeah, that was a really tricky sort of um, high wire to sort of uh, balance the story on, so to speak, because there, there's sometimes there's no rights and wrongs, and yet yeah. it is a crime and it is a wrong, but somebody might argue, yeah, but, you know, um, supply, demand, all that sort of thing, you know. Mm. So it was a very intriguing premise to play with. Mm. Yeah, it certainly was, and for a reader as well. Now, gorgeous Jack seems to blur the lines, shall we say, between his professional and private life, yeah. just just a little bit. <laughs> and, um, he doesn't mean to, Sandy. <laughs> he can't help it. <laughs> he can't. He can't, which is, is somewhat of his endearing quality. Now, knowing you the way I do, Fiona, I also know this isn't by accident from your point of view. So why is it important for you as the writer for Jack to, to have this particular character trait, shall we say, and to blur those lines? Well, I, you know, with 
I think it would be more problematic if Jack had a permanent relationship because I would have to keep referring back to that permanent relationship and mm-hmm. how is how is his life affecting that permanent relationship. So the way it's been set up, we've got poor Kate uh, Carter, DCI Kate Carter, where you all of us would desperately love Jack and Kate to just mm-hmm. get their acts together and <laughs> get it on. But that is part of the tension of the storytelling that I quite like as well. I quite like that Kate can unravel around Jack and yet she is his, you know, without, she is very powerful in his life. She's such a brilliant detective and yet she has her Achilles heel is the very man that she can help the most. Mm-hmm. And he is very strong about Kate that, you know, there is no chance that they are. So that makes it uh, a fun aspect in the story. But also, I don't mean him to be a bit James Bondish where there's always a different relationship, but I want him to be um, a sort of a chivalrous guy. And mm-hmm. if you look back at all the um, relationships over the course of the four books, they've happened not through intent. They've sort of happened to him. Um, and it's not like he could put up his hand and say, it's not my fault, but um, <laughs> he sort of is the chivalrous guy. And if there's a woman who needs help, he's going to help her. Mm-hmm. And he is very perceptive towards women's um, feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the endearing qualities of him that we, and he he likes to make sure that women do well in their, in the policing um, system as well. So he's got this, lovely quality to him that he's a little bit of a um you know he sort of stands up for women um lost his own mother he's got a sister you know so he's always been this good guy and but he's never settled down with somebody so it's like he's searching for something but he's too frightened to fully commit Mm -hmm. to it and so Mm -hmm. we end up with these um relationships that seem to come out of um the very situation he's been thrust into and he's getting into trouble over it. You know, it's it's beginning to poke through a little bit now and people are noticing. So that mm. adds new sort of sharp dimension to the storytelling as well. Yeah, that's certainly um, part of the story that I really enjoyed. Now, regular readers of yours know just how much research you do, regardless of the genre in which you write. And with this latest Jack Hawksworth novel, did your research throw up anything that surprised you? Um, well, I think surprised in the way of being thrilled, definitely, that people were so willing to help me. Incredible. Mm-hmm. So willing. I um, pe- People usually are, but it, it seemed very uh, easy for Dead Tide. It didn't matter who I asked for help. They said, yeah, sure. Um, so, and that goes for everyone from um, brilliant Trisha Stringer, who lives at Wallaroo and said, yeah, come on up, come up for the, you know, I'll show you around, I'll show you everything you need to know. And that, so she was fantastic. Um, but even down to the SA police, you know, they were just so open and helpful. And, um, you know, the coroner, the um, rather the forensic pathology, SA forensic pathology were just superb in how they helped me. So um, I think that was the delicious surprise that it, I thought it was going to be ridiculously hard Mm. to break open (coughs) and set up a new network of contacts 
over here, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. People were just very open, very helpful. And um, yeah, it, it made the whole process a lot less scary than it, it was in my mind. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was great. Fantastic. Now, because we are talking about both your historical novel, The Orphans, and your crime novel, Dead Tide, I wanted to ask you if there are, um, are certain challenges when splitting your creative mind across two quite different genres, and if writing in one of those genres helps when writing the other. Uh, I, that's a, a very reasonable question, but I think the answer is no. I um, compartmentalise mm -hmm. very well. I think it's my superhero quality that I can just <laughs> switch off from historical and switch up into um, Dead Tide, for example, from The Orphans. If you look at the two um, writing styles mm. in those books, they're wildly different. Very different, yep. Yeah, so one's very lush and sort of full of emotional sort of content and the other one's more spare and more direct and more about, you know, the, the pace is sort of headlong. Um, mm -hmm. so they're very different writing styles. Um, you wouldn't necessarily pick them as the same author, but no. maybe maybe people who know me would. But, um, no, I think I compartmentalise very well. So I, they're just in sealed lanes and I just move from one lane to the next. Um, I seem to do that with ease and I don't know why, but that's how I do it. So the, the only thing I'll say is the... Um, my experience of writing clues the next book. So I always feel that each book is a little bit better than the last one, mm -hmm. technically, because I've learned from the last one. But yeah, after you've written about 40 books, you're learning, learning, learning. So I think in that regard, it doesn't matter which genre it is, they've all clued each other, they've helped each other along. If I didn't have all that experience in writing 14 whopping fantasy books, I wouldn't be the historical writer I am today. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I think there's something to be said for that. But on in the most part, I don't think historical writing clues my crime writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I noticed was how strong your characterization was in Dead Tide. And, and I'm not a massive reader of crime fiction, but of, of what I have read, it's probably the strongest characterization that I've seen. And so I was kind of wondering if all of that other work that you've done in fantasy and in uh, women's fiction had maybe helped. With oh, definitely. I just think, you know, I do think I improve with each book and you can't sit back on and rest on your laurels and think, okay, well, I've written 40. I know how to do this. I <laughs> never think like that. No. The only time I allow myself to think like that is because I don't plan my books. I don't have a storyline that I'm following. I don't have a an idea of the beginning or the middle of the end. I don't have any of that. All I have is a character. And with Jack, I only have him. I don't have the mm -hmm. other, the rest of the cast. With the orphans, I had Fleur. I hadn't yet got Tom at that stage. Mm -hmm. I just had Fleur. So I, 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 the only time I let myself be flippant is to say, your back of brain knows how to do this, so don't worry about it. The story, <laughs> the story will form itself. Get your characters right and mm -hmm. the story will form itself. So, in that regard, I can be flippant about it, but for the most part, um, 
Yes, I would say that it is just experience shining through now. It's just you've done a lot of hard, I've done a lot of hard yards and how to build a character. And I know what makes a char character stand up and then step uh -huh. out of the pages and into the heart of the reader. I mean, that's that's my job. And now I think I'm good at my job. I just have to keep getting better at it. And I think, you know, with Dead Tide, those contemporary characters who are so different to the historical characters feel real because um, I'm, I'm doing it better. I'm just doing it better with each book. Mm -hmm. That's the only explanation I can give, Sandy, because I don't, none of my characters are based, certainly in the crimes, they're not based on real people, mm -hmm. you know. Um, other than my pathologist, I did lean in to her because she impressed me so much and she was so the person I wanted in the story that I did use her. But her role is a cameo role. She's not she's not the main one of the main characters. So all the main characters are just from my imagination. Mm -hmm. So they they are clued through um, just experience and the knowledge of what is needed for a reader to invest in a character. Well, as I mentioned, The Orphans is definitely my favourite of your historicals, so I think that is proof that you are definitely getting better uh, with every book. I was so frightened of releasing that book and, yours, you know, quite a few people have said much the same, so I'm, um, I'm a little bit flabbergasted by it, but very grateful, very grateful, yeah. Now, I, ca I can't let it slide that you mentioned that Jack Hawksworth has been optioned for screen. Yeah. Has there been any movement on that optioning? Uh, like you to see uh, anything? Uh, no, no, no time soon. Look, screen is glacial. It yes, really yes. is. They option um, books all the time, and it could be years later they decide not to do anything with it. So, I am very pleased that that's not my. Um, I I don't put all my focus there. In fact, I forget about it completely. Mm -hmm. And I've told myself ever since that happened. You know, you're nothing to do with that. Yeah, they've got the rights to make it, but you're a you're a um, you're an author, and that's your job. Just keep writing books. So, I don't even look at that because it's not going to involve me anyway. I don't think. Uh -huh. so, but for the time being, no, these things are very very slow, and they have to queue up and wait their time, and then they've yeah. got to find the right writers' room together, and then they've got to find the right. Um, team who will take it from there into a pilot and who's going to stump up the money it's it just takes forever mm. you'd end up going gray <laughs> if you focused on it so I just I just ignore it but I mm. that was I only mentioned it because it was so in, integral to why Dead Tide is mm -hmm. uh, set in South Australia I'm sure your fans will be waiting with with bated breath to, to yes. come to getting that character right on screen is very important as well for all of us yeah. because you know you know how it is when you see someone you've loved in a novel suddenly on the screen you think oh I didn't see them like that so you, can, you know you can't please everyone but it, it's a very it's a it's quite a trick to pull it off and please enough people yeah. where they can say yeah you know that works that is Jack I think. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I'm I'm staying patient on that. <laughs> now, before I let you go, Fiona, it would be remiss of me not to ask what's next for you. Is it another historical, another crime novel? Well, uh, the next historical is written and submitted and we start editing uh, mm -hmm. any minute. So that is for 
the end, uh, you know, the next Christmas book will be The Sugar Palace, which is set in Ooh. Sydney in the 1920s. And I'm presently, um, I would say, a quarter of the way through writing Jack Number 5. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's coming up and he's back in London. Um, and I will start around May writing the new historical for 2024, which will also be set back in England. So I've... I've written two books on the run, um, historical that are um, Australia-based uh-huh. and, of course, Dead Tide, Australia-based. I'm going to return to my favourite stomping grounds for a little while. But what it's done is sort of get the monkey off my back where I can say, all right, well, if I do feel like writing a story set in Australia, the um, the audience um, is going to say, we don't mind. We don't mind if it's set in Australia. So, They've been so warm about the orphans and they're excited about the Sugar Palace. So I feel I've got permission from my readers to mm-hmm. um, set more books down under if I want to. Um, but certainly the ne- after the end of this year, we'll be back in uh, England for the historical and for Jack. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking as one of your avid fans, Fiona, I think I can safely say that it wouldn't matter where you set your novels. We will be very happy regardless. <laughs> Thank you, Sandy. Thank you so much. And for you with your novels too. Blimey. Um, (laughs) Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Now, thank you so much for joining us today on the Words and Nerds podcast, Fiona, to talk about The Orphans and Dead Tide, both which are available now wherever you get your books from. It is always such a pleasure, pleasure listening to you discuss your work. Thank you, Sandy. And thank you to those out there in podcast land for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Your regular host, Danny V, lets me take over the reins. Until then, happy reading.